The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. So our topic for this morning is the Christian man and his relationship with church or the Christian man and worship. And before we get into the details on kind of what we've outlined for that, I want to remind us that preaching is by definition to be confrontational. Preaching is by definition meant to be confrontational. What we mean by that is we we don't want to preach sermons or listen to sermons that tickle the ear and affirm exactly where we are and exactly where we believe we ought to be at that moment. What we want is for God's word to come confrontingly into our life and to correct us. So we, we ought not tolerate people who, preachers in particular, who give smooth, soft, lovely sermons that sound nice, where we walk away with that sense of warm fuzzies and a little bit of goosebumps and are not challenged. Now, there's a downside to that. Being challenged and confronted, not my favorite thing in the world, right? It's, there, there's going to be things that we're going to mention today that I guarantee will offend some of you. That's good. We should want God's word to offend. We should want God's word to confront. And if there's uh, anything we say today where you're like, I'm not really happy about that, I would exhort you to ask yourself, why? According to God's word, why is that? So unless we've all arrived or you've personally arrived, we all stand in need of God's confronting in the way that we uh, conduct ourselves in life and ministry. And our relationship to church is no different than any of those other topics. So we, uh, we want uh, our sermons here to be confrontational. We also want, and this is going to be kind of just a, a note I'm going to push up front because I suspect there might be a temptation to hear this morning's message wrongly. I'm concerned that you might hear uh, a bunch of what are going to be perceived as rules or law, law, law. I don't want you to hear it that way. What I want you to hear is grace, grace, grace. God is, is bountiful in his grace. And the things we're going to talk about today are actually avenues and streams upon which his grace comes into our life. Now, we can either uh, avoid those streams of grace and avoid those opportunities for his kindness and strength to work in our life, or we can submit ourselves in faith to those things, knowing that God delights to use them. So we have, I, I know it's not the best number in the world, but it's not a bad number. We have seven points today, and I don't want you to hear seven rules that are burdensome. I want you to hear seven Ways in which God's grace can flow into your life and shape you and make you more like Christ. Which that, that's our goal in everything that we do. We want to submit ourselves to the ways of God and the rules of God so that we're shaped more and more into the likeness and image of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that these seven things 
do that and do that powerfully if we would but give ourselves to them in faith. Because there's a way of giving yourself to a thing, but not doing it by faith. There's a way of checking a box, jumping through a hoop, doing something that makes it look like a Christian would do it, but not doing it by faith. Doing it by faith is that you trust that God uses these things to shape Christ more fully in you. Now, do you and I stand in desperate need of Christ shaped more fully in us? Yeah. Do you have the requisite power to do it in and of yourself? You actually don't. I, I don't know of anyone who can like change their own wretched heart. I need God and his grace to do that. I think these seven ways uh, are primary with regards to our relationship to the church. So we're just going to dive in to the first one. They'll all kind of have the same format, so if you take notes, good for you and awesome. If not, don't worry about it. The first one is this. The Christian man gives himself to church attendance. Now, we, we cannot talk about your relationship with church if you don't go to, guess what? Well, you don't go to church. So if you're not here, you can't actually be uh, engaging in the life of the church and in any of these things. So the very first thing we want to mention with regards to a Christian man's relationship with the assembly of the saints is you have to be here. I know that might, you might see like, okay, this is the most duh of all of the things you could be mentioning. Uh, Oddly, it's not as self-evident as maybe we'd like to think. You must be, and there's two different ways that we want to engage this. The first is that our attendance before the worship of God should be regular, not irregular, not based on the the way you feel the morning of or the way even necessarily what the whole family might want. It needs to be committed. Is the worship of God and the attendance in worship, is that something that is easily pushed off of its spot whether it's hunting season or sports season or lake season or whatever it is, or is it holding that place of priority and other things have to take second place? I'm going to argue that the church and the worship of God among the saints must have that priority in your life. Now, I, I understand that some of you have jobs that do impinge on that. I'm really thankful that police officers and like uh, professions work on Sundays, right? That like there's ministries of mercy that do that. But outside of those things, or I'm, I'm really thankful that when the power goes out, Dave goes and restores power, even if it's on a side. I'm really happy about that as a power consumer. But aside from those ministries of mercy, church attendance should be that center of your life priorities. So Hebrews chapter 10, we've got a bunch of different verses. You can either turn and listen or turn and look at them yourself or just listen as I read them. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, do not neglect the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's actually commanded in scripture to not be irregular or negligent with regards to coming to worship. 
cannot afford for this to happen. The, the fourth commandment is one of the Ten Commandments. It's not one of the ten that dropped away or is optional. Remembering and keeping the Sabbath day, guess what? Still there, the heart of the moral law of God. So we ought to be men who are bound by God's word, bound by the commitment to God's word, and say to ourselves and to our family, when God's people assemble, we will be found among them. Especially if you dads who have younger families, they need to learn from your faithfulness that this is not something that's tacked onto life. This is the heartbeat of what we are about. I'm, I'll use my dad at several points uh, in the sermon uh, this morning. This was something my dad did exceptionally well. We knew, unless we were deathly ill, we were at church every Lord's Day morning. And family vacations and all the other things that we, uh, well, we didn't take vacations. But if we took vacations, they would have uh, worked their way in and around where we could be on Sunday. Now, there's uh, an, uh, something I would add to that your attendance should be regular. Your attendance should be joyful. How you come to church is about as important as that you come to church. So if you come disheveled, tired, grouchy, not ready to worship, that's not optimal. You should be prepared for the activities that God has for you and your family. Does that take some forethought, discipline, and intentionality? It does. But you shouldn't come in. Now, as Baptists, we have the, that Baptist face down, that scowl that tells everyone, I'm joyful in the Lord today, brother. <clears throat> I know, I, and I, I need to work on this too. Smiling every now and again isn't the worst thing in the world. See, I'm already tired from doing that one. So, we need to show up joyful. The God of the universe calls you into his presence. That's awesome. And you, as head of your house, guess what? You get to lead your family into the place of worship. What a weighty, awesome duty. Gentlemen, that is something that should be of great joy and weightiness. But let's not forget the joy part of it. Psalm 121, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of Yahweh. Or Psalm 84, verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. You shouldn't be found in the tents of the wicked ever, but doubly on the Lord's day, you should not be found uh, pursuing your own business, but pursuing the Lord. So, men, make it your joy and your duty to regularly be found in the house of worship, and that will be contagious to those around you. Your attitude, for lack of a better term, will be picked up on by other people in your family and other people, not even just in your family, but here at the church. Joy is contagious, but guess what else is really contagious? Being a stick-in-the-mud jerk or just being a, a sour reformed person, right? That's contagious. So as much as we're able to, fostering joy in our hearts that the God of the universe calls not just me, but my family into his presence to worship him. Now, secondly, 
And this is where I, I again, I'll, I, I'll stop making apologies. I think these are just desperately important. Uh, I would say a Christian man ought to give himself to church membership. So not just attending a church, but being involved and invested in a church body. Now you might say, well, that seems a little self-serving. You're a pastor here at a church. I say you have to be a member of this church. But you should be a member of the church you go to. You should be a member of the church you go to. You are called by God's word to be under church leadership, to be invested in the lives of the church. And so just, just to be fulfilling what the New Testament calls you to, membership does that in part. So here at Grace, if you want to be involved in any kind of level of ministries, guess what's just got to be part of it? Membership. Should you be actively serving and invested in a church? Yeah. It's not just attending, not just a, a spectator, but being an actual invested party in that local assembly. So whether it's here at Grace or there are guys who come to men's breakfast from other churches, where you are, be invested there and be plugged into and committed to the saints there. There's several places we could point uh, to it. My goal this morning isn't to give a long extended apologetic on church membership, but just take Acts uh, chapter 1 verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. This is before the Holy Spirit descends on them. And there was a company of, and your Bible should say 120 persons. The actual, the way it says it in the Greek is there were 120 names. There's actually several places within the New Testament that talk about a list of names that they knew who was part of the assembly, who was part of the church there. There's no other way that Paul could write like the book of Romans and name all the names that he does in chapter 16 without knowing exactly where those people went to church and where they worship. So being invested in the church, being joined to the membership of the church, and then engaging in the ministries of the church. So investing in one another, saying to yourself and to your family, God has given us gifts that that aren't meant for just, well, us. They're actually meant for other people. And so looking for places where you can then minister those gifts. You might say, like, well, I'm not a, I'm not a preacher. That, that's fine. I'm not gifted in, I don't know. We're putting together gift baskets for Thanksgiving. If you're like, I'm not great with decorations, gift basket stuff, that's fine. I'd be worried if you were really good at that. I'm glad you recognized that was a joke. So, <laughs> but invest and serve the body. The Spirit gives gifts to each member, and He gives me gifts that you need, and He gives you gifts that I need. Pray and seek that God would show you where you can serve in a local assembly for His glory and for the good of His bride and the good of His people. Do not be, and I think I either, I'll mention on the next one. Be invested in your church, be a church member. Number three, a Christian man gives himself to church fellowship. So that means that when you're here regularly, joyfully, investedly, that you're not just here like a lump on a log. 
You might say, I'm an introvert. I don't care. That just means it's harder for you to talk to people. I, uh, you might have noticed this, I don't struggle uh, talking to people. It's not like there's struggles I have. Talking to people is not one of them. Maybe you're one of those who's uh, an introvert and you're like, you know what? I'm just fine sitting in the corner by myself. And if no one says more than hi, I'm fine. You are called by God in his word to engage the bride of Christ, the, the brothers and sisters around you in Christian fellowship. To carry out many of the one another's in the New Testament as a faithful Christian man. Guess what needs to, at some point, do this. Your mouth. Encouraging one another. Building one another up. Exhorting one another to love and to good deeds. So, continuing with Hebrews 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Encouraging one another... And all the more to do it as the day is drawing near. So I I don't know how to encourage someone without actually engaging them. Without actually at some point talking to them and investing in them. You might say like, well, I, I do that with my family. Some of the most important interactions I've ever had as a young man had to do with other Christian men exhorting me and speaking to me. It's one thing to hear it from your dad. That, th- th- that goes deep. But to hear that same thing said to you by another man in, in the body of Christ, those go deep too. Those shape you. So that even just with the young guys around here, investing in them and investing not just in the young guys, but in the other people around you encouraging, you see them discouraged, you see them backsliding, or you see them wayward, exhorting them. Not as a jerk, but as a loving brother in Christ. I love it when I hear uh, guys, uh, kindly, hopefully, saying to one another, like, hey, I missed you last week. That's saying more than just like, hey, I noticed you were gone. It's like, hey, where were you? Encouraging one another. Noticing one another, when someone notices that you're gone, isn't that like a good thing? That you're known well enough that people would notice when, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so for a while. I'm happy that he's back. I'm going to check in on and see how he's doing. Encouraging each other and being, and this is where we want to put a, a bit of emphasis on that uh, proactive masculine uh, emphasis that uh, Mark Chansky talked about, and I think it was our first or second time together. You are not called to be a passive, reactive person. You're called by God to be proactive, engaging, and, and not just responding to the environment around you, but dictating things around you. So not just waiting like, oh, I'll talk to someone if they come and talk to me. Like, no, be proactive. Be the one who, who actually goes and initiates that. Don't simply be the reactive one. Looking and praying for ways that you can participate. Now, when we are here on, on Sundays, now this is extend beyond that, but we ought to not be passive, idle spectators riding in the sidecar of church attendance and membership. We should be active participants. This is one of the reasons, I don't know if you've noticed it, we have, even though we've changed a little bit of our call to worship 
there's something that's always in our call to worship. It's reader response. Have you guys noticed that? Okay, if you didn't, that's fine. So you might say, well, why would we do that? It's just like a hokey thing the Reformed Baptists do. Like, no, there's actually thought that goes into it. The thought is, I need to uh, engage the members of the congregation from the very first thing that we do. There's a message we want sent. You are not here to observe. You are here to participate. That from the very first thing we do, we're actually intentionally with the way that we do our call to worships. We're trying to engage you, the congregation, and get in our heads and in our hearts. I'm here not to simply receive. I'm here to engage as an active worshiper. That's important from the very first moments of our service. Whether you're teaching a class or engaging in a a service, a a good teacher knows they need to get participation early or those listening are just going to settle into a passive, receptive way and not, not put anything or much into it. So encouraging one another in a proactive way, realizing that I'm not here to be a spectator, I'm here to be a participant. I'm not in the, uh, to use a sporting analogy, I'm not in the seats. I'm on the field. You came to worship God, not to just sit and go along with the stream. You're here to do a thing. Do it and do it with all your might. On that same theme, number four, a Christian man this is maybe the uh, one we're not the most excited about. Well, no, actually, there's another one that'd be worse. Um, <laughs> gives himself to singing. I say, ah, dang it! I knew you'd say this. Christian man gives himself to singing, and you might think, don't, I don't want hands raised or testimonies given. You might say, singing is more of a I don't know, feminine activity. Negative. It is not a feminine uh, activity for multiple reasons, not least of which uh, God is the author of song and he himself sings. If you were here for Sunday, I think it was afternoon, when Pastor Brian looked at Zephaniah 317 and it speaks of God singing mightily over his people. If you want to accuse God of being feminine, uh, that, that's, that's up to you, but I, you know, that would go badly in my estimation. It's not a feminine activity. It's not something that you should think like, well, the, the ladies at church are really into it. Uh, just stand up and kind of go through the motions. It is, I, I, I would argue, if anything, it leans towards the masculine side of things. One of my favorite psalms on this topic is Psalm 149, verse 4. Tell me if this sounds feminine. For Yahweh takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and a double-edged sword in their hands. That does not strike me as uniquely feminine, gentlemen. That, des- that, that describes a man intent on worshiping God, and we'll get to it here in a second, and understands that his singing, on the Lord's Day in particular, 
is warfare. We get to why it is, but it is not a uniquely feminine thing. If you've noticed, and this is going to be something, I hope I don't go out here on a limb and have it like snap beneath my feet. But in certain professions, and I think law enforcement is one of them, so I'm kind of slightly looking over at Seth for like affirmation. If you had a really soft, tender, effeminate voice, how good of a cop would you be? Seth, good cop or not optimal? Yeah. You don't want to be like, please, sir, put it down. Put the gun down. Like, no. God gave you as a man, in general, a voice. And in general, is your voice louder or quieter than a lady's? You might say, well, my wife's got pretty. No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. In general... The man has a bigger apparatus for for speaking and has a louder voice. So here's where I think it might get a little uh, uncomfortable. When we sing here at the church, and it breaks into ladies' parts and men's, who's louder? Be honest. The women. By a substantial amount. Gentlemen, that's got to stop. That's got to, each time I'm like, come on, guys, you're making us look bad in front of the women. God gave you a voice. Use it. You might say, I, I'm not good at singing. He doesn't demand that you're good at it. He says, be loud about it. Over and over, if you, if you look at how the Bible describes singing, both in the Psalms and the other book that has the most music in it, which is going to be Revelation, There is a defining feature of the worship of God over and over and over again. It is loud. Sometimes it's flat or monotone, but it's loud. So when we are called to worship, just listen to some of these psalms. Psalm 33, verse 3. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. Loud shouts in the worship of God, gentlemen. Psalm 47, verse 1, it gets a little Pentecostal. Clap your hands, all people. That's hard for us, especially uh, those of us who are challenged with regards to melanin. Keeping rhythms tough. But anyway, we'll just keep reading. (laughs) Shout to God with loud songs of joy. So even if you don't know how to sing well, you can sing loud. Even if you're like, I I wasn't raised doing this. Neither, I've never had voice lessons. If you sit in front of me at church, you'd be like, I can attest to that. He is not. You can sing loud. uh, There there are several folks who, when they would come visit our church, comment on how loud our singing is. I think we're only at about 60% right now. I think we got another 40 to go. To be singing in the way that the Bible calls us to sing loudly. Now, it's no uh, secret to you that there are times where, like tomorrow, I'll be helping lead the singing from the front. So guess what I get to see during that time? Who is and who is not singing? I'm not going to point out individuals because that would embarrass Colin. I mean, just season. <laughs> Colin sings well. I see a lot of guys who don't even sing. On the Lord's Day, among his people, hands in pockets, mouth closed. 
Unacceptable. Unacceptable. It's got to stop. You should be zealously, loudly praising your God. He's worked such a, a salvation in your life, a little quiet whisper, not going to work. Zealous singing. The other element that I said we would look at briefly here is that uh, worship is warfare. So you might say, I don't even know why we sing. Well, we're doing battle when we sing. So that's why we would sing, right? We do battle when we sing. Uh, Congregational singing disappeared for a thousand years in the life of, of the church. There was a season under the Roman Catholic Church where if you were not a liturgical priest choir, you did not sing. It was actually the reformers that brought singing back. And it was actually Calvin who was chief among them. And he said, because sometimes we think of these reformers and they're like, I can't show any emotion. That's how they know I'm godly. Bully. Calvin said, our prayers are cold. We must warm them with song. Calvin, actually the opposite of the staunch, stern reformer, said, actually, our problem is we're a little too tightly wound. We need song to thaw our hearts that have been cooled and chilled by the world, and we need to engage in warfare with regards to what we believe. So there's a reason why we do it publicly. There's a reason why we do it corporately. We're battling unbelief when we sing. If you want uh, an illustration of that, um, I had a front row seat to it, and it it was beautiful and tough to watch. But when we sang for Mateo's funeral here, what was that if not warfare? When I see his family on the front row singing about the resurrection of the dead. You want to talk about warfare? That was warfare. We do that every Sunday. Every Sunday we engage in that. You might think, well, there's some songs that... That they're not warfare songs. Yeah, we, I, don't even, I hope you've noticed, we don't sing any Jesus is my boyfriend songs around here. So we don't want to talk about, yeah, I won't give any illustrations. We don't sing that here. If we did, I would be upset and we'd uh, seen into it quickly. So we don't sing those kinds of songs. We sing other songs like the Son of God goes forth in war. We've got a, a new song coming out that is, uh, see the conqueror mounts and try. We, we aim for warfare type songs around here because we recognize that's what we're doing. But if you just want an illustration from scripture, say like, I would need to see that in the Bible to really hitch my wagon to that. Second Chronicles 20, 21 and following. And when he'd taken counsel with the people, he pointed those who were to sing to Yahweh. That would have been an all male choir, by the way. And praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, this is the thing that they sang, give thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. That sounds like some of the songs we would sing around here. And when they began to sing and to praise, Yahweh sent an ambush against the men of Amnon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, and they were routed That's not the only occasion in the Bible. There's actually several of them where the choir goes out first because there was they understood when we sing it's battle. And it's battling against so many times 
things you can't see. You guys understand what Paul said when he said, our wrestling isn't against flesh and blood, but our wrestling is of a spiritual nature. When we sing on the Lord's Day, we are unsheathing swords, as it were, and doing battle spiritually with the songs of Zion in our throats and the sword of the Spirit in our, in our hands. It's warfare, and we, as the men of the church, should be singing loudly, zealously, joyfully, leading the way in that. Fifth. Oh, my goodness. All right. Fifth. This is where uh, we'll just continue to step on toes. Uh, a Christian man tithes cheerfully. I just sat down and thought about what, is, uh, what does life in the church look like? And we'll apply it to guys. And I couldn't think of it without talking about tithing. You would know that we almost never talk about this here at the church, but it is clearly laid out in Scripture that giving is a part of the life of a believer. Just is. Just is. If you look at Matthew chapter 6, that's kind of a, a major portion of Scripture where the Lord is teaching in a very pointed, specific way. And he's listing religious duties that ought to be a regular part of your life. And if you work backwards through that list, verse 16, when you fast, is fasting part of the Christian life? Yeah, it should be. It's not, not as much as it should be, but um, when you pray, verse 5, should praying be a normal part of the Christian life? Yeah. When you give, verse 2, it's actually just in the very words of Christ. When he's talking about the normal ebb and flow of the Christian life, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, he doesn't put an if in front of it. He puts a when in front of it. And then summarizing all three of those in verse 19 through 21, Jesus says to you, the church today, do not lay up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you would tolerate me reading a little extended section from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, Paul is writing, actually there's multiple letters in the New Testament where Paul is writing, and the major driving cause, oddly enough, has to do with church's giving. You wouldn't know it, but uh, Philippians is one such book. The major driving cause is giving. Uh, secondary one is two ladies are fighting in the kitchen at the church, and he's addressing that too, along with being joyful. Second Corinthians, similarly, takes up uh, the, church, the church there had pledged to help the church in Jerusalem, because I believe a famine had struck them and the saints there were languishing. He, listen to what Paul is writing as he's giving them instructions on this topic. Accordingly, we urge Titus as he had started, so should complete among you this act of grace. What's the act of grace? Actually giving. Yeah, he's, he's directly talking about the giving of money. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, and in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act also, in giving. Verse 8, 
I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. It benefits you who a year ago started uh, not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it well so that your, your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what uh, the, a person has, not according to what he does not have. I think there's actually some really key lessons to learn here. He said, Paul says, I'm not saying you give what you don't have. You give out of what you do have. So I, when, when it comes to churches, there are some churches that build their individual empires off the backs. Well, more of off the pocketbooks, I should say, of those they were meant to take care of. Specifically, the widow and the orphan. You realize that's the thing that was so despicable to Jesus that when he saw it in the temple, he stormed out angry and said, I'm going to tear this place down a brick at a time. It's actually, and we use, sadly, and I think we, I think we misapply this text. The widow who gave her last two pennies, I don't think that's, a, that's not a story on giving. It's a story about an institution that took a widow's last two pennies to live on. She was the one that they were supposed to protect. She was the one they were supposed to provide for. And they fleeced her for it. That's the last thing Jesus sees before he walks out and says, Surely I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. So with regards to the church not caring for the poor and the needy, that's, that's wickedness. With regards to normal church life member giving, that, that, that is to be a regular part of it. For this, I'm exceedingly thankful to my dad for the way that he raised me. I was raised that this was just a part of life. It wasn't a if we can't. It, it, was, it was every month we did. That was just, it, it was like church attendance. It was seen as something that didn't budge. And while it's important for us to do this as, as men and leader of our, of our houses, realize that your kids need to see this too. And it was even, it was just in preparing this piece of it that I realized because we don't pass the plate here, my kids actually don't get to see it. So I need to be more intentional in making sure that we would rotate them to see because we put them in the boxes in the back. I don't know if you know that there's boxes in the back, <laughs> but I realized in, in prepping this section when I used to, when we used to pass the plate at our last church, we would give our kids something that they could drop into, and that they would see it. Not again, again it's not as a, some weird way of like, look at how godly mom and dad are. They live with us. They know we're not that. So it was mainly showing this is an important part of worship. This is an important part of what it is being part of a family. I realized when this, I've not been doing a good job with my daughters since I've been here, because they don't see it. It just happens. We just walk by, drop it in, and I bet they wouldn't even know that the boxes are back there. Being a dad raising young girls who are going to grow into women who will one day, God willing, be wives and active participants in a church, they need to see that. And they need to see it faithfully carried out by their parents. 
Number six, two more. A Christian man gives himself faithfully and regularly to the ministry of the word. So that would mean that you are not just here, but that you're submitting yourself to the word of God for your own edification and change. You're not here so that uh, the, the, the sermon can tune up your kids or your wife and you, you like keep nudging them like, you listen to this? Like, no, it's for you and for them. For everyone involved. So giving yourself regularly and faithfully to the preaching ministry of the church. First Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, exhortation and teaching. Second Timothy 3.16, we would do this so that we are because we have a belief that all scripture is breathed out by God. And we by faith believe that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We sit here each Sunday morning with that fixed in our minds. This word of God is powerful and can change me. And I need it to change me in the inner man. Let your family, let your wife see you changed by God's word. Let them see you confronted. Let them see you grieved over uh, areas of conviction. Let Let them see you repent to them after some exposures to God's word. This is a whole different topic. But if your wife or kids have not regularly heard you say the words... I was wrong, that was sin, will you forgive me? We're doing great damage to them. You need to lead the way, guys. Not not the awkward quiet where everyone's like, Dad was wrong, but he's not going to say anything about it, and we'll walk on eggshells till this softens up. No. They need to see it, guys. They need to see it. You sin against your wife in front of your kids? Guess where that restoration needs to happen? In front of the kids too. I don't know why we think that kids are somehow unaware of the ways in which we fail. (laughs) They're very aware. (laughs) Just think of your own dad. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, no, I totally saw that. They need to see it. And when we are brought under conviction by God's word or challenged by God's word or, or, or encouraged, like we can even put a positive spit on it. Like even if there's like an encouraging thing that somehow magically happens in a sermon and you're like, wow, I was encouraged. Share that with them. But don't, don't take the posture, and I, I hate it when I see it, of someone who sits under God's word and the measure of the sermon is something like this. If it said everything I currently believe and do, that was a good sermon. And if it confronted me at any point, I didn't like it. That's not the way we sit and receive. We, we should want to be challenged. We should want to. I mean, some of the best sermons I've ever listened to myself were awful. You're sitting there going like, please stop. Not like they were bad sermons, but they were so convicting. You're like, stop talking, please. I don't know if I can take. They were, this is not a pleasant experience. 
but the Spirit of God is doing work in my soul, we should want and pray for that. So, so when we come to God, when we come and, and sit down before God's Word, there needs to be a humility that says, like, Lord, instruct me. Instruct me in your ways and shape me. Don't let me leave here the same. That, that, that needs to be the Christian man's posture with the Word of God. In ways that I didn't even expect you to confront today, confront it and change me. That takes a tremendous amount of faith to plead with God to work His Word powerfully in your life. Do you think that preparation for that might be beneficial? Yeah, thank you. Someone's listening. Yeah. So, does that mean that maybe Saturday night we get our, our families to bed a little early? Yeah. Sunday morning does start Saturday night. That's a, that's a discipline needs to get in place. Is there maybe getting up early enough so that um, you don't get to church with the shouts of like, get along, are still ringing in the car? <laughs> I guess I'm the only one who's ever done that. I'm sorry. I'm just airing my sin out in public, right? So a lack of discipline on the Lord's evening or morning, Satan loves to use it, doesn't he? Satan would love to just throw chaos into your vehicle as you pull off of Hayborn into this driveway. He'd love that. He'd love for that morning to be filled with tension and strife and grief. Why? It's going to sap what God's doing. Don't let, it, don't let it happen. To be the watchman over your own hearts and over your homes. Seventh, last one. A Christian man gives himself faithfully to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The first one's really easy. If you are a Christian man and you have not been baptized, get baptized. That's all I got to say about the matter. There's nothing really much more to say. If you are a Christian and you've put your faith in Christ and you've not publicly identified with Christ in the waters of baptism, walk in obedience and be baptized. Dads, if you have kids at home that you are convinced have come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's not like, well, Billy said it and he's two. Like, no, like... Test it. See if he's got, speaking of dads, my dad's calling me. I'll call you later. Test their understanding of the gospel. Speak to them of what is sin? What is salvation? Why does Jesus dying mean anything? Talk to them about it. And if you believe that they've come to a saving um, knowledge of, of Christ, encourage them to pursue him in obedience, which would involve what? Being baptized. Publicly identifying with, uh, with the people of God. The other of the two uh, sacraments, the Lord's Supper, we do it a little bit maybe out of the ordinary here. We have it once a month in our afternoon services. I get that it makes for a long day. I, I, being a dad with little kids, I get that it makes for a long day. But when the supper is served, make sure that you are present for that. That is one of the primary ways that grace floods into your life. It's called 
a means of grace for a reason. Is it a means of saving grace? No, it's not a means of saving grace. It doesn't save you if you do and cast you into hell if you don't. It is a means by which, if you look at the way that our confession puts it, where our faith is nourished. So just like you eat and the benefits of that are pretty evident, like you have energy to go and do the thing you got to do. And if you don't eat, how effective do you think you're going to be in your life? Well, not really effective for very long. Similar thing happens with the supper, with the word, with prayer, and with fellowship. It's ways that God encourages faith. So if you go to the supper and you're like, my faith is so weak. I don't know if I should take the supper. That's like being like, I'm starving. I don't know if I should eat today. Not had that. I, I, like Those are not thoughts that I uh, entertain for very long. If you've had a rough, beat-up week, you need the supper more than normal, perhaps. If you think, I've had a fantastic week. I don't, I don't need the strength of God. Repent of that pride and take the supper because you really need it that Sunday because you don't think you need Christ, and you do. So give your, be here when we have the supper. Make it a priority. Prepare your heart and the the hearts of your uh, believing family members. Explain to your kids what we're doing. Talk to them. It doesn't sneak up on you. Like it's it's once a month. It's always the first Sunday or almost always the first Sunday. Talk to them about it. Some of the best conversations I've had with my uh, oldest, um, not as much with my youngest quite yet, or my middle one quite yet, but my oldest, Every time we'd have the supper, she would be asking, what is it about the bread? Why do we drink the cup? And what, this is a gospel opportunity on a platter for you. Speak to them about it. And, not just, and I don't want to just put it into how we, we um, would engage our kids. Engage your own soul. That the, the, one of the messages of the supper, among many, is that the table of Christ, or Christ himself, has everything that I need. And in him, there is a fullness that can satisfy all of my genuine true needs, and the table of the world does not have what I need. Is that not a a message we need beat into our heads, into our hearts regularly? That Christ is a sufficient Savior. The world is a terrible liar. I need him, not them. And feeding again on those truths. Trusting that he uses that to shape Christ in you. If you only go through the supper because it's like, that's the thing we do at the church. We just do it and it's weird. It's quiet. It's awkward. And one of these days, like, someone's going to drop a tray and you're just going to be worried that you're not going to laugh. Like, okay, we've all had that thought, especially when they're, it, just as a side note, if you grab a cup and it's not coming out, it's not challenging you. Move on. Grab a different cup. Move on. Some of y'all take it personal. I watch. You're... It makes me as a server nervous. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> move on. I know it's challenging you in that moment, but just like die to self, move on. So <laughs> y'all know who you are. You can get right later with the Lord. So... <laughs> Give yourself to these things, brothers. Engage fully in what God has for you. Now, I, I hope and pray, and I've prayed before this, and we'll, we'll pray after, 
that the way you heard these seven things wasn't like, I just got kicked in the ribs for an hour about how bad I am. I hope I've described for you the lavish graces and kindnesses that God lays out for you weekly. Weekly. I, I told myself when we were in Seattle and shut down for COVID, I'd never take a Lord's Day for granted again. Guess what I've sadly been guilty of since that time? Taking a Lord's Day for granted. I don't want to. Try not to. But I need to see every one of them as a gift from God to me, his son, for my good. And the word of God encourages you and calls you to take full advantage of all that he has for you. Humble yourself and seek him in the fullness of the grace and the kindness that he lavishes in front of you so that Christ would be more fully formed in you and therefore more glorified by you. Let's pray. Our great God and our Father, we pray that you would work these truths in our hearts. I pray you'd work them in my own heart, that you'd work them in the hearts of our children and grandchildren, that you would show the strength of your arm in transforming us and the extent of your kindness and your patience with us. We pray as we assemble here tomorrow to worship you, that we would engage in all the means of grace that you lay in front of us, that we do so by faith, we do so with expectation that you would do good to your people because you delight to do them good. We pray this in our, in our Savior's great name. Amen. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.